for those listening online, we are going through Genesis 3 tonight. So I just want to start by uh, reading a quote from a theologian called Anthony A. Hokema. He said, human beings reflect God who exists not as a solitary being, but as being in fellowship. And we did see that last week in Genesis 2, that God created Adam and Eve to have fellowship with him and to have fellowship with one another. And in the Jewish study Bible, it says, while one might assume that fellowship between humanity and God began in the tabernacle, following Israel's exodus from Egypt, the tents of meetings in the wilderness, God first dwelt with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden under the canopy of trees. Mm. The tabernacle in the garden is a symbol of God's perpetual desire to dwell with his people. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, he longs to be with us. He just longs to be one with us. But tonight, we're going to look at how Eve's choice to eat of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil disturbed the order of creation and damaged their relationship between God and his creation. So what we're going to do now is read through Genesis 3. But I'm going to turn off the recording for those of you listening online, because I know it's hard for you to hear the others read it. But when we read through it, we'll start it back up again, the recording. Okay. Okay, so we read through Genesis 3. And don't you love that first verse there? The serpent. Did God indeed say? Mm-hmm. You really can't trust what he says. Remember the first class we had in Genesis 1, the Word of God? Can yes. we trust what God says? What He says, He does. Yes. But here He is. Did God indeed say? And it's amazing how Satan succeeded in getting Eve to doubt the truthfulness of God's Word and the goodness of His motives. Right? And isn't that how he comes to us, too? He causes us to doubt what God's word says. And what we heard tonight, that he is good and his mercy is forever. The fact that we are still sitting here on planet Earth proves that his mercy endures forever, that he is good. But what's amazing is Eve had no idea how far-reaching the consequences would be from her conversation she was having with the serpent. So we're going to look at how she interpreted what God said versus what God did say. Okay, so on your handout, you see from Genesis 3 verses 2 and 3 and how Eve quoted what God said. And then in Genesis 2 verse 16 and 17, what God actually did say. So Eve quoted God. She said, from the tree of the from the from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat god said from any tree of the garden you may freely eat eve said but from the tree of the fruit but from the fruit of the tree i keep changing the words around which is in the middle of the garden we shall not eat from it or touch it lest we die But God said, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So you see a contrast there, right? So that tells me, and you know what's amazing? Did you ever wonder what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was? Today I looked up the Hebrew word for the word evil, and I want you to think about this, okay? The Hebrew word is ra, and it means natural and moral uh, evil. Adversity, affliction, calamity, distress, grief, harm, heaviness, hurt, misery, sorrow, trouble, wickedness, pain, sadness, injury, wrong, unpleasant. That is the meaning of that word, evil, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Hebrew. And we wonder, why is life the way it is today, right? She took of its fruit, and that's what she was partaking of. Remember, they had only known what was good. Remember, Genesis 1 and 2, that's all, it was all good. It was very good, God's creation. But the minute she took of that fruit, she had the knowledge of evil. She was going to experience these things. Her and her husband and the whole generation, and all the way to our generation today. So now that they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of evil, now they would experience all these things I just defined in their life, but so would we. So would we. So we see why it's important to take God's word serious. To take what he says seriously. You know, Jesus told his followers, take heed how you hear. There's a reason why he said, take heed how you hear. Because they heard what God said. But look how it was interpreted. It wasn't what God said. It's amazing that 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3 and 14 The Apostle Paul said, but I'm afraid lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds may be led astray from the sincerity and the purity of devotion to Christ. For Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. Wonder why he's addressing Eve? James 1.19 says, be quick to hear. Slow to speak. This word here is the same word Jesus uses with take heed at you, how you hear. It's the same word. In the book of Revelation, also of Jesus Christ, the messages to the church. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. The same word is being used there. The meaning of that word to hear, because remember, Eve didn't hear right. The meaning of the word here that's being used in all these scripture means to attend to, consider what is or what has been said, to understand, perceive the sense of what is said, to hear something, to perceive by the ear what is announced in one's presence. Because think about this now. Adam was there. He was there too. 
to get by hearing, learn, a thing that comes to one's ear to find out, to learn, to give ear to a teacher or a teaching, to comprehend, to understand. And Eve didn't need the, heed the warning that the tree was associated with evil and that God said, if you partake of it, you shall surely die. It was a guarantee. Wouldn't be immediate death, but don't we see death in our world today? How many times do we do the same thing though? We don't take heed how we hear. We misinterpret God's word to make it to be what we want it to be. And we don't realize there's a way that seems right to the ma- a man, but at the end of that way is death. We're on the wrong pathway. So I thought about 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17, and we've heard this in the church, this church, probably the past six years where the Lord keeps calling us, come out from among them and be separated, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. And to touch means to attach yourself to. Don't attach yourself to the things that will draw your heart away from the Lord. Whenever we shade God's truth just a little, it can have disastrous effects upon our lives, upon the lives of others, can affect the whole generation. And some of us in this room know this to be true. We've seen it. We've experienced it. We know it's true. What happened in the fall, I love this quote, what happened in the Garden of Eden was like a nuclear explosion took place and we're still feeling the after effects of it in our generation. Isn't that amazing? What happened back then we still feel the effects today. So then we see the deception there in verse 4. You're not going to die. You don't have to take God's word serious. You don't have to be that serious about it. But Romans 6.23 tells us what? The wages of sin is death. So with sin, we do die. We do die. God said there was a guarantee of death if they disobey. And the spiritual implication of their disobedience was a warning of separation from God and physical death that we saw in Genesis 2.17 when we were contrasting both of those scriptures. And we know this to be true because in reality, all our days are numbered by God, right? He determines when we come into this world and when we leave. So our days are numbered by the Lord. So what we learn from Eve's rebellion is if we stray from the truth of God's word, there will always be consequences of that. Always. Always. We could deceive ourselves thinking, oh, no, it's not going to happen. But yeah, whatever we sow to, whether the flesh or the spirit, that's what we're going to reap. We're going to reap. If we listen to ungodly counsel... I mean, she was listening to ungodly counsel. We can be deceived into sinning. If we're being led by our emotions, feelings, by what we see, rather than what God's word says, 
we can be deceiving ourselves. Why? Because Jeremiah 17 verses 9 and 10 tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. So we look at Eve and the choices that she made. But now in verse six, we see that Adam was there the whole time listening to this conversation going on. Did you ever wonder why he never stopped her? Why didn't he correct her? He knew God told him. What we just read in Genesis 2. He knew she was in error, but he just went along with her. Do you remember what Adam's responsibility was? We looked at that last week in Genesis 2. He was to shimmer in the garden. What does that mean? Do you remember? He was to protect, he was to tend. He was to keep what God entrusted to him. He didn't take his role seriously. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. And as a result of it, because he didn't do that, he gave up his God-given responsibility as her husband. And then Eve wound up usurping his headship and his authority. And Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. And that's what you're going to see from this chapter here on out. The other chapters we go through. One sin after another, after another, after another. And we were singing that song, I'm desperate for you, and my prayer was, Lord, Help us to see how desperate we really are. Open our eyes to see it through this chapter just how desperate we are for you. How lost we are. Because we are. We are. So we look at the temptation, right? I love, I think it was Maddie that read it. She saw What she saw was pleasant to the eyes, and it was desirous, and she took of it. She saw what she saw was pleasant, and it started stirring desire in her. And think about how many things that we see as women, right, that are pleasant to the eyes, stirs up the desire in us. And we go for it, right? We go for it. If someone here says no, you're lying because we all go for it. We're all tempted in these areas, all of us. Every single one of us are tempted in each one of these areas. James 1 verse 14 and 15 in the Amplified Bible says, every person is tempted when he's drawn away, enticed and baited by his own evil desires or lust and passions. Then when evil desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully matured, brings forth death. And the other day, I'm reading through the book of Numbers, and I saw the scripture verse. I've never seen the scripture verse in there before. All of a sudden, it just popped off the page from Numbers 15, 39. God said to Moses, 
that the people's hearts and eyes are inclined towards harlotry. The children of Israel. I was like, whoa. God said that about his people. Henry and Richard Blackaby, the guys like studying a lot of their materials, said human beings are capricious and easily distracted. Isn't that true? Aren't we easily distracted? I am. Yeah. I am. You don't want to be distracted. You have to lock yourself in a cave somewhere where there's nothing around, including your phone. But even your mind will start wandering. So worldly concerns constantly draw us away from fellowship with God. Isn't that true? So the three areas of temptation that we see in this, what we're looking at, do you realize Jesus also faced in the wilderness? He faced the same three temptations, but he overcame them. They failed, but he didn't. So the first temptation, the lust of the eyes, covetousness. Covetousness. Covetousness is a wrongful desire to possess what God has not ordained you to have. This desire is usually directed at what belongs to another and greed, giving free reign to an overwhelming desire for more than is God's will for your life. They're both sins that reveal a focus on self-gratification. Both covetousness and greed are linked with idolatry. That comes from the self-confrontation manual. So that's what was at stake in the garden. The second was the lust of the flesh, contentment. The lust of the flesh. Didn't God provide everything they needed? Yes. He provided everything. We saw that in chapter two. Everything they needed on this planet. And then before he created things on the planet, the cosmic, you know, the sky, the ocean, the air, created time, space, and matter. But it wasn't enough for them. It's, it's pretty amazing that they weren't content with what God had given to them. The children of Israel weren't either, were they, in the wilderness. God provided for them manna, and they got tired of it. Right? God provided everything they needed in the 40 years in the wilderness. The shoes didn't wear out. But it wasn't enough. They would complain and murmur. We want what we had in Egypt. We want to go back there. They forgot they were slaves. Bondage there. Forgot all about it. But that goes to show you there's the struggle with the lust of the flesh. And not being content with what God has given to us. Because reality is... We can't bring anything with us when we leave this world. Just the clothes, whatever they put on us in the coffin, that's the only thing that's going with us. Or if you're being cremated, you don't even need that. <laughs> so the, other, the third area was the pride of life. They wanted to be like God, wanted to be in control. And we really see this happening now globally on a large scale, don't we? The desire to control is just rooted in the hearts of men. 
So these are three areas that are really rooted in what we struggle in. Covetousness, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, being content, and pride. Just wanting to be like, I'm God. I could be just like him. No, you're not. No, I'm not. We just a speck of dust. That's what scripture tells us. We're nothing. Nothing before him. See, but Satan's plan is to keep us orientated towards gratifying, pleasing, exalting, and esteeming self. That's his aim. And as a result of their rebellion, sin entered into God's perfect world. I can't even imagine what that must have been like to have tasted of that perfect world, that perfect relationship with God, and all of a sudden, it's gone. And they knew it was gone. The minute they took of the fruit, they knew. Their eyes were open and they knew they were naked. Meaning they were exposed, totally exposed. But it was too late. It's too late. Yeah, I mean, so the physical implication of their disobedience was they became totally self-centered. They knew they were naked versus being God-centered. Where before, that's all they can think about was God. Now they were self-centered. They realized, I am naked. I've done wrong. And they had shame and guilt. Because look at how they responded. They covered themselves when they perceived that they were naked, that they were totally exposed. But the problem is they try to come up with their own self-made plan to cover their sin. Fig leaves, the loincloths, one translation said, which was a futile and superficial way of dealing with their sin of rebellion by disobeying what God had said. But again, think about how many times we did that, right? We know we've done wrong, but yet somehow we're trying to cover and hide what we've done. But God sees it and he knows. Well, maybe if I pray more, read the Bible more, attend church more, do more religious activity, then God will accept me. How many of us fall into that trap thinking religious activities will cover my sin? We fall into that trap. No, that doesn't make us right before God. And what we see here, God, they heard God walking in the cool of the day right after they sinned. And this is the first, first theophany, meaning an appearance of God to human beings in a matter that can be processed by the human senses. So they heard God. They used to walk with God. Remember chapter 2, they walked with him. But John 3.20, now they sinned. John 3.20 says, Everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And here they're hiding. They don't want to be exposed. But God already knew what they had done. Because he's omnipresent. He sees all things, knows all things. Psalm 139. We see that in there. God loves us too much to allow us to stay hiding in the dark. So he comes to Adam. He comes to him to seek him out. Adam, 
Where are you? Comes with accountability. He knew where he was. He just wanted Adam to admit what he had done. Why does God do that? It's called redemptive confrontation. When God confronts sin, the biblical term for that is redemptive confrontation. He wants to restore fellowship back. So his confrontation is always to bring us to a place of repentance where we can be reconciled back to the Father. You see that, verse 9, 11, and 13, where he comes to man and he exposes and asks questions of man so that they can acknowledge, confess what they've done because he's seeking fellowship with his people and he pursues us. So the invitation to repent is actually a love call from God because he wants to restore fellowship with his creation. Did anyone notice as we read through this how God holds Adam accountable more than Eve? Even though she was the first one to eat the fruit, to sin. But he went directly to Adam. Adam, what are you doing? I, I, I don't know if he said it like that, but that's what I would say. What are you doing? Are you crazy? Why didn't you stop your wife? You know the truth. Why did you take it lightly? But look how Adam responded in verse 10. I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And here we see the mental consequences of their disobedience. Fear runs into the world. Worry, anxiety, deceptiveness entered into the world. This is where mental health problems started in the garden. This is where it started. Did you ever wonder how did they know that they sinned? How did they know? Because God is holy. God gave us a conscience to know right from wrong. Don't you know when you've done something wrong? Don't sometimes, like, someone will ask you something, you open your mouth and you answer, and it's coming out of your mouth, it's like, that's not true. Where'd that come from? Has that ever happened to you? It just happened to me. And you find yourself at that moment having to correct it. It's like, that's not true what I just told you. But it just comes out. That goes to show you how deceitful the heart is. We don't have to think about it. It just comes out. If you remember in Genesis 2.25, before Adam and Eve had sinned, they had no reason to be ashamed. Remember? There was no shame. And now here they are. Riddled with shame. And God asked Adam, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Again, we see that redemptive confrontation. He's coming to him, trying to get him to confess. He knows he did eat from the tree. Who told you you were naked? 
Could you imagine how piercing that question was coming from God at that moment? That talk about, you know, we looked at the word of God in chapter one, how piercing God's word is, that it judges the thoughts and intents of the heart, the motives of our heart, rightly divides us. And just think about this was God in the flesh asking him this pointed question that I can't even imagine what that was like. Talk about feeling like an arrow had gone through you. An arrow of love. Of love. That's what it was, his love that was asking that question. Because he's trying to get them to confess what they have done. You see that in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 11. To agree with God about our sins by way of confession, we see the fruits of repentance here. That godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, the deliverance producing a diligence, an earnestness to clear yourself, indignation, the fear of continuing in the sin, a vehement desire to do what God says, a zeal to do what God's word says, a readiness to see justice done, restitution with those you've sinned against. These are the seven qualities of someone who desires to change. And if you notice, they're all action words. It's not just I repent, it's action. And that's what he was trying to get them to acknowledge. Just acknowledge what you've done. Don't hide it from me, I see it anyway. I know all about it. Come to the light with it. But then in verse 12, we see here the blame game starts. And here is where we see social consequences of their disobedience. Now there's discontentment with the spouse or in marriage and interpersonal relationship problems. The man is blaming the wife. It's the woman's fault. God, it's your fault. You gave it to me. It's, it's her fault. It's not my fault that I sinned. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? Again, redemptive confrontation. Eve, the devil made me do it. He deceived me. Blame shifting. The devil made me to do it, seeking to justify her sin. It's not really my fault. He deceived me. And this is what happens. Don't we see this now? How we justify our sin, minimize our sin, blame shift our sin, deflect by talking about someone else or something else to get the attention off of ourselves. And all the while, God wants us to just acknowledge it. Psalm 51 is a beautiful picture of how we acknowledge, yes, Lord, against you and you only have sinned and done this evil before you. David's a good example of what true repentance looks like. Well, God came to them in this way. And here they're just pointing fingers back and forth. So in verse 14, we see God's judgment upon sin because he's holy, as we heard. He's righteous and he's just. It comes upon the serpent who comes as an angel of light. And he tells the serpent, you're going to crawl in the dust, which tells me he was walking around in the garden. Right. Yeah. He comes as an angel of light. 
He comes as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. First Peter 5, 8. But thank God in the midst of that, God proclaims the gospel that there would be enmity between him and mankind. That he would send his son into the world in verse 15. Who will crush Satan's head. So it's amazing. Right in the midst of that mess, the gospel is proclaimed. The gospel is proclaimed. Because only the gospel, only what Jesus did on the cross can remedy this whole mess. He's the only one. God would send a deliverer to redeem mankind back to him and crush Satan under his feet. According to Luke 3, verse 38, Luke 10, 17 through 19, Galatians 3, 16, and Revelation 12, verses 9 and 11. And this is known as the doctrine of salvation called soteriology. And the reason why I share these terms is because it's good that you know these things, what they mean. Soteriology discusses how Christ's death secures the salvation of those who believe. It helps us to understand the doctrine of redemption, justification, sanctification, propitiation, and the substitutary uh, atonement, which is what we need. We can't do that in and of ourselves to make ourselves right before God. Only Jesus can. Then God's judgment comes upon the woman. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Moms, have you experienced this? Yes. <laughs> pain and childbirth. Have you experienced sorrow in your life? Even if you're not a mom, yeah, we've all experienced sorrow. Remember the tree of the knowledge of evil, that fruit of evil, what that entailed. Job 5 verse 7 said, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly. Keep looking for a great life here on planet Earth. This is what scripture says. Don't believe any teacher that tells you differently, false prophet that tells you differently. This is what scripture says. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. We are under a curse. And the only way to escape this is through death. Death. But what about where it says for the woman, your husband shall be your desire. The Hebrew word is and it means stretching out after a longing desire, craving that you feel inside, a desire to control or conquer your husband. That's real. <laughs> Someone said that's real. <laughs> Part of the curse. What a curse that's on us. What about subjection? You will always be under the rule of your husband. Do we like that? It is a blessing. It is a blessing. But not many people see it as a blessing. 
But it is a blessing when it's done biblically. It's a blessing. So now we have God's judgment upon the man. You will work the ground in pain. The consequences of sin include lifelong toil. Hard labor and sweat would now be required to grow food. And when men desire to accumulate more than God's provision or resent how hard they have to work to provide, they're falling under the work role curse. It's good to understand what happened in Genesis 3. And you could see why there's so much in here. It's like, what do I share? What do I not? What do I cut up? What do we keep in? There's so much in here. I mean, we could, I told Jeff we could spend two weeks in this if we wanted to because there's so much. But then we, got, we see God's judgment upon the ground, upon the earth. The ground shall be cursed on your account. And we think about the environmental consequences of their sin that we see in our world today that man's trying to fix. Thorns, weeds, fungus, tornadoes, earthquakes, hurricane, floods, wildfire, raging, global warming, etc., etc., etc. Do you think man can fix this? No. No. And we're falling into the great deception if we're putting our trust in man to fix this. Someone just read a scripture tonight on that. Not to put our trust in men or the princes of the earth, only in God. Romans 8, 20 through 22 said, For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labels with birth pangs together until now. And the earth is groaning. And it seems like the birth pains are getting closer and closer. Closer and closer. Again, from the self-confrontation manual, I thought this was so good. It said, the problems brought on by man as a result of sin, his sin of disobedience in the Garden of Eden cannot be solved by man's devices and philosophies. Regardless of the futile attempts to mix God's word with unregenerative, unregenerated suppositions and theories. All of man's wisdom, philosophies, devices, procedures, manipulations, and sincerity cannot substitute for God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. We got to remind ourselves of this, especially if you're watching the news or hearing the YouTube videos or whatever you, you, how you get your news. We got to remind ourselves of this. There's no politician that can fix this. No one. So in verse 21, we have the first animal sacrifice in the Bible for the sin. After the ground is cursed, blood has to be shed. Because Hebrews 9.22 tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. And God had to kill an animal, his first animal that ever had to die. Think about that. First animal that had to die. Blood had to be shed so that he can make them tunics to cover their shame and their nakedness, their skin. But he clothed them with his righteousness. He clothed them. 
Romans 5.15 says, For if by one man's offense many die, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Romans 5.16-19 says, For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So again, we see the gospel there. Yeah. By the shedding of blood, we see the gospel. Romans 5, 6, and 9 says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely... For a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And that's good news. And that's we need this good news as we're reading through Genesis 3. Because if you don't have good news of the gospel, it's hopeless. It really is a hopeless situation. There is no hope. Ephesians 2, verse 13 through 17 says, But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and those who were near. For through him we have both access by one spirit to the Father. And Jesus is the second Adam that made a way back for us, the Father to make a way back for us to be with him for all of eternity, to have that unbroken fellowship with him again like they had Mm -hmm. in the beginning. That's where we're heading. That's what God desires. That's what he desires. So what we see in the end of this chapter, that God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turns every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What a mercy. Cindy and I were talking about that not too long ago. What a mercy from the Lord that he did that. Because you imagine if man had forever and ever that evil to be in control of that evil forever and ever. What a mercy. Adam and Eve had to be driven from the garden. 
and that tells us sin separates us from God. As a result, mankind was banished from paradise, and they were driven out of the garden to a harsh and hostile world. And when we go through chapter four in the next few chapters, we're gonna see how harsh and hostile the world was, and still is. It's not gonna get any better. It's not gonna get any better. So don't listen to preachers or false prophets that are telling you it's gonna get better, because it's not. It's not gonna get better. All the issues we faced in life is a result of man's first sin. Loss of innocence, shame, knowledge of good and evil, guilt, fear, broken fellowship with God, emotional pain, low self-esteem, Victimization, blame shifting, verbal abuse, dysfunctional family, physical suffering, role dysfunction, job stress, pain of earning a living, pain in the role of mothering, and sorrowful, sorrowful idolization of children, distorted marital relationship, wife desires to rule her husband, and husband desires to rule harshly, rejection, physical terror, separation from God. Each one of these hard issues is a direct result of our well-being rebellion of God towards God, and our rebellion towards God, too. We also saw the spiritual consequences, the physical consequences, the mental consequences, the social consequences, the environmental consequences, and the interpersonal consequences. We desperately need God. We're desperate. We desperately need God. Our world needs what Jesus did on the cross. It's desperate. And we are totally lost without him. We are totally lost without him. Only the gospel message, only what Jesus did on the cross can release us from the curse of sin. Only him. So next week we're going to look at Cain and Abel. And we're gonna look at anger. We're gonna look at depression. We're gonna look at self-pity. We're gonna look at what happens when we don't deal with these things God's way. We're gonna look at those things, Lord willing, if we're all still here by then, because anything can happen between here and now, anything. So, but Lord willing, that's what we're gonna look at. So. You can read through that chapter if you like. I had a feeling today this class would be too long that we wouldn't be able to have our regular discussion. But I just felt it was important to go through this chapter the way we did. Because it kind of puts the pieces of the puzzle together why everything is upside down. Why it's, it's just totally upside down. You know, and this is where it all starts. It all starts here. So, Lord, we do thank you, Jesus, that somehow your word has been preserved for so many generations so that we could read it in our time and truly understand how much we need you, Lord. Not only for ourselves, but for our world, Lord. Just everything, every aspect of this creation needs God. And Lord, I do pray that we would just take all the things that we have pondered tonight and just continue to meditate on them. Lord, just help us to remember these things when life isn't fair. 
when we think that it's not fair, help us to remember why we're in the predicament we're in, Lord. And I pray that you would teach us all contentment with what we have, Lord. I pray that. I pray that we would not covet or not rise up in pride with wanting to be in control, wanting to be like God. Lord, just keep us down. Humble us, Lord, I pray. Help us to walk in humility before yes, you. Jesus, yes. God, I ask this, Lord. I pray that we would learn from the examples that we read in the Bible, Lord, of just how to walk with God yes, yes. with a pure heart. God, help us, Lord. Yes, just Jesus. to walk in that way. I pray this, Jesus. And I pray that you would be with each one of my sisters tonight, Lord. Just bless them, Lord. Give them the grace that they need for mothering, being a wife, Lord. Whatever it is they need grace for, I pray that you would pour out abundantly upon each and every one of them, Lord. Just the, what you want to give to them, your Holy Spirit, and the wisdom that comes from above. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.